Please calm down. You can't stop me. You shouldn't even try. Does this seem unfair to you? Well, perhaps it is, but like so many other things we value, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, come now, don't fight. It'll only make it worse. Why don't I tell you a story first, hmm? All right. When I was a girl, I was in awe of the love my parents had for one another. My father loved my mother in a grand and romantic way, the way we all dream of being loved. He picked her wildflowers and wrote her poetry, took her dancing in the moonlight. My mother would look at him and smile like the entire universe was glowing back at her through his eyes. Looking back, it all seems too good to be true. And that's because it was. One cold January day, when I was just 12, a sudden snowstorm tore through our town. My family had all risen before the sun and eaten breakfast together. We wrapped ourselves in blankets while eating our oatmeal and laughed at nothing in particular. We were happy. As usual, my father kissed my mother and then left for his job at the bank. My sisters and I walked to school and, as it was a Wednesday, my mother would spend her day at the library volunteering to read to the blind. Usually our house would stand empty until our mother returned at around three o'clock. But that day, the snow had sent everyone home early. It had fallen silently and in heaps. Mother walked to the schoolhouse so that we could trudge home together. When we got there, smoke was coming from the chimney, which was odd given that the bank had not closed and father wasn't expected home for hours. My sisters were giddy and ran straight for their sleds, but I was curious. As mother's key turned in the door, muffled thuds echoed from inside and I heard my father spit out swear words he was careful never to use. We walked in the door and my mother went straight for her bedroom. And though she told me not to, I followed. There in the bed, wrapped in a quilt my mother had stitched by hand and nothing else, was my father and our neighbor's eldest daughter. She was 20, a slender girl with long, shiny hair the color of cherry wood and eyes not unlike the sun-dappled forest floor. Her body had not made babies. Her hands had not scoured floors. Her eyes never swelled with lack of sleep. Her mind never worried. She was bright and new, and in that moment, something inside my mother snapped. My father, in this moment of discovery, had slithered into his dressing gown and gotten to his feet. Split wide open with the hollow pain of betrayal, my mother did not speak. Quick as lightning, she grabbed a footstool and brought it down as hard as she could on my father's head, knocking him unconscious. He fell to the floor on his belly, where he belonged. Once he was there, she hit him several more times for good measure, and a dark red puddle seeped out under his head. The girl cowered and screamed in my mother's bed. Had she known what was good for her, she would have run. Mother had different plans for her, though. My mother walked to the fireplace, which had a cozy little blaze going, and with a cloth wrapped around her hand, retrieved an iron from the fire that she kept hot for quick pressings before evenings out. She calmly walked to the bed, looked at the girl, and said, 
You cannot give back what you have taken from me. So I will take something else in return. And then she held the girl down with one arm and pressed the iron to her face hard. The smell of burning skin filled the room. My father gurgled from his place on the floor. And so my mother brought the iron down on his head a few more times, crushing his skull and spilling its contents onto the hand-tied rug. Then my mother turned to me and said, Keep your beauty, my love. And if you can't, steal a bit from someone else. Then she pulled a pair of scissors from her knitting basket and methodically removed the girl's entire scalp. She was a smart woman, my mother. You should always listen to smart women. And that's why you are here. Yesterday, you sold my husband and I coffee, like you do every Wednesday. He thinks I don't notice how the two of you flirt. You bat your impossibly long lashes and take me for a fool. I know he comes there without me. I know you've been in my house. Yesterday, as we left the coffee shop, my husband remarked on how beautiful your eyes are. Yes, I agreed. They are beautiful. I sure would like to have eyes that are that beautiful myself. But you see, I can't permanently change the eyes I have been given. So, I decided to take yours. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would, would be dead. Scalped, maybe. Oh, no. I know. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Woo! We have an excellent tale of hollow month horror for all of you guys today. Yeah. We went so classic. We are finally talking about the blood countess, Erzebet Valtteri. Oh. Which is how you pronounce it. Took me a long time. Learned a lot of Hungarian this week. Mm-hmm. How would you pronounce it in English? Uh, the butchered American version yeah. is Elizabeth Bathroy, which is what most people <laughs> call her. Yeah, it's, if you Google her name, you will get more hits on Elizabeth Bathroy than you do her the actual spelling of her name. Okay, <laughs> which is really unfortunate, but we, America really can't have nice things. Right now, over the years, the Countess's story has grown and evolved. And one of the most contested points is that she bathed in the blood of virgins to keep herself young and beautiful. Now. We all get the appeal of a fountain of youth, right? Mm -hmm, sure. sure we do. But a whole bathtub makes our measly little chalice of innocent blood seem sad. For sure. I mean, like, really, like, didn't sell ourselves high enough. What, what are we thinking? I know. Could use a bathtub of that. I know. I mean, I was happy with it before because I didn't know any better. Oh, yeah, yeah. But now I really want the skin of a supposed vampire countess, don't you? Absolutely. Like, that's what we all want to be. Yes. Now, since I like to sleep at night and remain untraumatized by impossibly horrible deeds, I think we should go an alternate route. Okay. And luckily, our fiends can help us out. 
because as it turns out, a healthy dose of validation has the exact same, like exact same effect as a bathtub of blood. That's great. It's just like a lazier version. Yeah, but like science proved that it's the same. Oh, good. Okay. I read a lot of articles. So like more efficient, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah, the articles were entitled um, Science. So that means they're right. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. (laughs) So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And we have a live show in two weeks that we'd really like to be fresh for, so... Yeah, help us out, guys. Please help us out. out. Yeah, seriously. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to Patreon, where for a little monthly donation, you will receive access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, gain access to our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, and special extra mini-sodes. You'll get a gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply share any of our social media posts to your social media feed. Tell us when you're listening, share your favorite episode, tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell that one girl you went to high school with who definitely had some face work done and you kind of low-key want to know how much it cost. Is that just me? No. We all have that girl, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then your friend and that 39-year-old with a 20-year-old face can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Maybe she'll share her information with all of us. Oh, yeah. What's her name? Uh, Chandler. Oh, her name is Chandler. Yeah. I like it. Mm Mm-hmm. She's definitely really cool and has, like, the kind of Botox you can't tell is Botox. Yeah. I want to be her. Oh, and don't forget that VIP passes to our Mischief Night live show at Cape May Brewing Company will soon become available to all of you. So if you want a front row seat, get yourself one of those, right? That's, That's happening soon. Yeah. Yes. Right now they're available to all of our patrons. So if you're a patron and you want to get first crack at them, better do it now before we open it up to the public. Uh, And please come out and see us. There will be live music and costumes, a full live episode of our podcast. It's going to be the best. Uh, And I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything else to add before we begin? No. No? That's all of it? Yeah. Great. Just really thirsty for some blood. I mean, that's only going to get worse as time wears on with this episode. You're going to have to settle for bourbon and pumpkin spice cider. That's fine. I guess I'll like, I'll deal. Not as good, but yeah, that's all right. I should have made a red drink this week. Ooh. I wasn't thinking. It might have been gross. Remember when we <laughs> made that wine cocktail? Yes. I'm not gonna it. sell out the wine, but it was terrible. It was, it was not good. But we put a smile on, and we tried to get a sponsorship. <laughs> we tried so hard to get a sponsorship. We took pictures. It tasted like perfume. Wasn't good. We dumped it right. We after. D- we did not drink it. We dumped it right out. Yeah. Anyway, then, on with the show. A disclaimer. I gave myself a crash course in Hungarian pronunciation this week. I really did, you guys. I tried super hard to pronounce everything properly, but I am not a native speaker, nor am I fluent in Hungarian. Though it is a really beautiful language, and I would love to learn more of it. I really liked learning how to say words. They sound way better when you use the Hungarian pronunciation than the shit English one. So please, if I make a mistake, and I'm going to, forgive me, correct me, just don't be too mad at me. Okay? All right. So I usually begin with a big shocking event, and then I work backwards from there. But since this woman's life is just one big shocking event, (laughs) 
We're just going to start at the beginning and work our way straight through. Well, I like a I like a cohesive timeline. All right. I got it for you. A linear timeline, I guess. You know I love things mm-hmm. to be linear. I yep. just usually start with like, I like to give every episode a scream opening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love to jump around, but mm-hmm. I'm here for a linear one. Let's do this. All right, then. And this story does get pretty wild. But despite how insane it all sounds, I can assure you that we are talking about a very real human woman that did absolutely exist. There is records of her and portraits of her, and she definitely was a person. And while we're all here to go along for the ride, there are also some less horrifying theories about the Countess that we will explore once the ride has come to a full and complete stop. Okay. So So I am buckled in now. Excellent. So here we go. Erzebet Valtteri was born on August 7, 1560, on a family estate in Mirbator, Royal Hungary, to parents Baron George IV Valtteri and Baroness Anna Valtteri. Starting off strong. Leslie, why don't, why don't you, before I get into more Hungarian, <laughs> why don't you set the stage for us? Tell us a little bit about 1560, when the Countess was born. I bet there's some real hot trends and exciting music. Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, this is, I mean, we're going to be here a while. Such medieval fun. Yeah, so (laughs) it was super medieval-y. Queen Elizabeth I was the Queen of England. This area where what's-her-name was born, I'm not going to even try now, was split and constantly fighting political and religious wars between the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire, you know, like Christians versus Muslims, basically. She was on the uh, more Christian side of that war. William Shakespeare would be born in 1964. 1964. Yeah. I mean, well, 1564. There we go. There we go. So, like, right around the same time. That's very interesting that those timelines coincide. Yeah. Um, The first drawn-up instructions for playing chess appeared. Oh, wow. Chess is old. It is old. Yeah, of course. One of the oldest games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was also a leap year. Love knowing that. Yeah. So that that was 1560. <laughs> yeah, there's oh, man, people had the plague. There was yeah. a lot. It was they were just sick. They were trying to live. Honestly, they were. That's and, really uh, what was happening. And there people was a lot of war happening. Trudging through a really bleak existence. <laughs> a lot of people had strong feelings about religion, which I don't think has ever stopped. No. And um it was a little were, less informed back then though. Yeah, well, well. If anything, it, it might have been more informed because you're like closer to when all of those religions would have started. I don't know, but uh, yeah, there was um, a Bible that appeared then, the Geneva Bible, which was like the first written, like translated into English Bible. Interesting, and that was right before the King James Bible, mm-hmm. which is more widely used now. Dark time, dark, dark time, dark, dark time. I like how we have. It like- wasn't quite the Dark Ages. We got out of the dark ages, and now it's the medieval. Yeah, but medieval times, despite how jaunty the restaurant is, was not that fun. (laughs) No. So, as I mentioned before, Erzsébet was born in late 16th century royal Hungary, which was ruled by a series of royal families whose bloodlines had ruled different parts of the area for centuries. So this is like medieval Europe. It's all very complicated, but we will get to the Valtori's battery. Yes, it's hard. (laughs) Royal ties in a minute. Now, you may well have guessed that the only way to keep royal bloodlines intact for centuries so that they can have an uninterrupted rule is inbreeding. 
lots and lots of inbreeding. And it is theorized in many sources that the Baron and Baroness, Erzabeth's parents, were actually first cousins. Now, this is great for that whole bloodlines thing, but it's not super great for the genetic variation humans require to be born healthy. Mm. That's not to say it isn't common. All ancient royal families are about as inbred as teacup-sized dogs. I'm looking at you, Windsors. <laughs> In fact, Hungary's ruling family at this time, the Habsburgs, were so famously and deeply inbred that they all began to develop a facial malformation called the Habsburg jaw. This was a severe underbite and long, sloping lower jaw that in its later phases completely prevented Habsburg men from chewing. Oh. Yeah, they had this big, long, sloping. You can, there, I'll, put yeah. a, I'll put a picture of it in the photo suite. I did see his photo when I was doing did my, my lookup. The of, last of the yeah. line? <laughs> yeah. Woo! He was the dullest of the photocopies. Mm -hmm. They copied a copy, a copy too many Is that times. the Maximilian? I forget his name. Well, I will put this okay. portrait in our photo suite. It's, you have to see it. The Habsburg gene pool had become so shallow that the last round of men were completely sterile, and the family line went extinct. Mm. So you, you, got, you got to stop having sex with your cousins and brothers, man. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. As it turns it out— It doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. <laughs> it's beauty is fleeting and frightening. <laughs> As it turns out, inbreeding can pass along a whole host of abnormalities and genetic diseases like hemophilia in the case of the descendants of Queen Victoria of England and epilepsy in the case of royal Hungarian families. Both diseases are usually passed down on a recessive gene, but when both of your parents share the same genetic makeup, which includes that recessive gene, you're far more likely to end up with the disease yourself. Mm. So that's why a lot of... Um, the English royal family was hemophiliacs for a, yeah, a long period of time. They had to thin that shit out. They couldn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were like, oh, man, we got to marry other people. This is going bad for us. Mm -hmm. So this is the epilepsy, though. This was the case with Erzhebed. While she was always described as beautiful and extremely bright, from an early age, she suffered from violent seizures and went through a host of strange mystical cures of the time. See, unfortunately, for a really, really, really long time in human history, people just didn't know what to make of seizures. The violent jerking motions, catatonia, and lack of control lends itself to the appearance of demonic possession, if that's what you want to see. And as we saw all the way into the fairly modern case of Annalise Michelle, people who are very devoted to a strict form of Christianity really want to see that. This is likely the source of the later-in-life rumblings that the Countess was possessed by a demonic spirit or even the devil himself. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say she was possessed, and that's why she did all the horrible things she went on to do. And it's likely they said that because she had seizures. Mm -hmm. So, In addition to being assigned mystical origins, the treatments for epilepsy was often nightmarish in the Middle Ages. I mean, the treatment for everything was nightmarish in the Middle Ages. They were like, pee on it, or mm -hmm. we'll stab you a bunch. <laughs> or, you know, maybe we should make some blisters. That helps. Nothing was good. So some of the procedures were scarier than others. One of them is called uh, trepanning or trephination, wherein a hole would be drilled through the suffering person's skull to release the locked-up evil spirits. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, or maybe not thankfully, the Countess did not receive this particular cure. But it is believed that she was spoon-fed small amounts of the blood of non-epileptics or had the blood smeared on her lips. Now, this was often done through the use of a shallow collecting dish that was fashioned from the skull cap of a person who was also not a sufferer. 
Okay. So it got real dark for her real quick. Mm-hmm. How old was she at this point? Uh, I don't, there's no, it's hard because this case is yeah. so old, but I don't think epilepsy, I don't know when it shows its face, but I, I got the impression that she was very young. Right. Probably like, like early teens. No, or like younger. preschool. Like, oh, okay. Like three or four, this probably okay. started. Yeah, definitely, because she, we'll get to it in a minute, but she's engaged by the time she's 10. Oh, okay. And stuff. So, like, okay, she was so definitely like a very little. small child when this started. Okay. So, this early exposure to blood consumption as a treatment to promote health and vitality would make a lasting impression on the young countess. Mm-hmm. That comes back later. I guess it also gives you that taste of blood that we've talked about in the, like, mm-hmm. Richard Tretton cheese. And yeah. Rod Farrell. Yeah. <laughs> The Countess had a long and respected royal pedigree. Her father was uh, a baron of the Eshed branch of the family. Her brother, Andrew Bonaventura Valtteri, had been vivode of Transylvania. Now, a vivode is the highest-ranking official in Transylvania and was appointed by the king of Hungary. So, not a king, but the next best thing. Kind of like a governor is how they describe it, like we would have a governor of a state. Her mother was Baroness Anna Bathory, um, the daughter of Stephen Bathory of Somio, who was also a vote of Transylvania. So they're all, like, high-ranking officials. Okay. Erzhebet's Transylvanian lineage, can't speak both languages at once, should also not be ignored, as she was one of the influences alongside Vlad the Impaler for the most famous vampire in the world, Bram Stoker's Count Dracula. Mm-hmm. So Vlad Dracul himself was also a vaivode, um, which is two rankings above Count and Countess. So it's weird that they chose to sink him down to Count okay. Dracula, that is, when he could have been even more. Right. Mm. So that's just, to me, that's proof that they also went with Erzhebet's history because she was a yeah. Countess. Okay. So that's like part of her that fits into this puzzle. Sounds nicer anyway. It does. Count Dracula. Yes. Instead of Vyavod. Yeah. <laughs> Vyavod Dracul, which I'm is sure, what his actual. I'm sure Bram Stoker's like editor was just like, you're going to You got to fucking yeah. dumb this down a little for all yeah. of that. We're going to go with Count. And he's yeah. just like, but it's not as good. And they're like, like it's sh- fine. Sh- It'll sell. It's easier to read. Yeah. Um, Americans will love it. <laughs> <laughs> Through her mother, Erzhebet was the niece of the Hungarian noble Stephen Valtteri, the King of Poland, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, uh, and the Prince of Transylvania. Her older brother, Stephen, served as a judge of royal Hungary. So, like, just everybody was kings and princes and big deals, yeah. The Countess was raised in a noble household and therefore received a first-class education. She was fluent in Latin, German, Hungarian, and Greek. She was also conditioned through her environment to treat her servants and lessers very cruelly. It's medieval times, man. Yeah. Not everybody's nice. Frequently, the servants in the Valtteri household were the subjects of brutal punishments. The slightest error would provoke merciless whippings and beatings. It was common for the nobility to treat peasants with disdain. Yeah, you gotta keep them in line. Sure. Sure. As a child, Erzhebet once witnessed a man who had been convicted of stealing get dragged into the town square kicking and screaming. As punishment for his crimes, he was sewn into the disemboweled body of a horse. Oh, dear Lord. Yep. Erzhebet was so desensitized to such extreme violence that she laughed as she walked by. Oh. That's a kid you worry about. Yeah. If you're laughing at a guy being sewn inside a dead horse... You got your kid. You need to help them. Shit. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I know. Can you imagine? I'd be like, oh, no. We got to put you in a room somewhere. So they're, oh, my gosh. Why can't I remember his name from Game of Thrones? The Which young, one? The blonde, the young. Joffrey. Joffrey. They're all like Joffreys. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. That Exactly that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like just bratty and rich yeah. and mean. Yes. That's a very good comparison. While her wealth and social standing had groomed the beautiful young countess into a cold and unsympathetic person, it also made her an extremely, des- extremely desirable candidate for marriage. So at the age of 10, Ergebet became engaged to 14-year-old Count Ferenc Nadajdi, who was the son of Baron Tamas Nadajdi de Nadaj. Pagarashfold, yikes. Politically, the pair were an excellent match. Okay. And their families were satisfied. And while the marriage was arranged at that time when she was 10, it would not actually occur until Erzhebet was 15 and Ferenc was 19. So they did wait to get them actually married. Beautiful. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) When she's good and ready. Yeah, and... (laughs) Yeah, while it sounds like, oh, she they wanted her to be, like, emotionally prepared. It was probably just to make sure she could make babies. Oh, yeah. She was like, she's bleeding. Take However, <laughs> they didn't check too hard. Oh. Those years in between engagement and marriage were anything but dull. Oh. When she was 13, Erzebet met and fell in love with a local peasant boy. Oh. The two hid their affair, as Erzebet was already promised to another man. Well, another boy. All of this sounds very adult, and it's hard Mm -hmm. to remember that we're talking about children, but we are. The pair were able to keep their love a secret until Ergebet wound up pregnant. (gasps) Scandalous. At 13. Oh, my goodness. Eventually, she was forced to explain things to her family, and they were not happy. Obviously, the baby, who was part peasant, could not be brought into their family. This was a disgrace. Yeah. It would be too healthy. It would have really (laughs) fixed their gene pool a lot to keep that one, but they didn't. The birth was kept very quiet, and the baby was spirited away to a peasant family in Wallachia. Do we know where that baby is today? No, but I wish this story ended with that child becoming Vlad the Impaler. Oh. He was from (gasps) Wallachia, too. But it doesn't. Or does it? It doesn't. Or does it? It doesn't. He died in 1477. Oh, my God. My heart hurts. But wouldn't that make a great story? That would be. Trademark, y'all. That's my historical fiction empire. All right. (laughs) Even though it's like reversing their ages, if I could take a little leeway, that's where it would be fucking incredible. Like her bastard son that they hid in a peasant village became the greatest vampire inspiration of all time. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, we'll run with that later. After the whole peasant baby fiasco, Ergebet's soon-to-be-in-laws informed Ferenc of the disgrace. He was, of course, still going to marry her because the Baltares were more prominent and a wealthier family in this arrangement, but that didn't mean he had to take the situation lying down. Wait, that was his name? Ferenc. The disgrace? No. Oh. <laughs> it's really hard to get you <laughs> when you're going back and forth. I know. Ferenc Day. No, they informed Ferenc of the disgrace. Oh, okay. <laughs> it sounded like you said the Ferenc disgrace. the disgrace. Like, oh, like that was his name. I would love if his name was Ferenc the disgraced. That would be great. But I was like, are you it's just not. saying his name from the future? Like, no, 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 no. But okay. he did get really, really mad. Okay. So he wasn't disgraced in the end. Okay. Enraged, Ferenc had Erzebet bring him to the peasant boy, and she had to watch as he dragged the poor wretch into a field. Ferenc restrained the boy and then meticulously castrated him with his hunting knife. 
After he was done with this unnecessary field surgery, Ferenc threw the boy to a pack of wild dogs who tore him to shreds until nothing but bones and pulp remained. Wait, this is like exactly what Game of Thrones was like. And I'm sure some of it is based on this. This story is super influential. Oh my God. I know. The only person who ever cared for her out of pure and genuine love and not duty or selfishness had been reduced to pulp and bone before Ejebet's eyes at just 13. There were no more boyfriends after that. Oh. On May 8th, 1575, Ergebet and Ferenc married, and because the Baltres were the higher-ranking family, Ergebet did not want to lose her name. So instead, Ferenc changed his. I love that. I know, so modern. They were yes. all Baltres at this point. The event was a lavish affair, the wedding. Over 4,000 people attended it. Okay. Yikes. That's expensive. I know, that's like more than a Kardashian West wedding. Wow. Ferenc was not without a flair for the dramatic. The wedding celebration went on for three days, at the end of which he presented his young bride with her wedding gift, his family ancestral castle. And I want you to try and pronounce the name of this castle. Okay. Before, with, without any, I needed so many pronunciation guides. I'm going to need to write this down. It is spelled C-S-E-J-T-E. 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 I have no idea. <laughs> Chaita. Chaita. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Along with the Chaita country house and 17 adjacent villages. So she got a castle, a country home, and 17 villages as a wedding gift. Well, she should. Not <laughs> too shabby. She made out quite well. She sure did. Well, she was the richer one, so he really had to, like, bring it if yeah. he wanted to marry this woman who comes from all the royalty in Transylvania or whatever. Yeah, he needed more than a goat. Sure did. Way more than a goat. I love goats. I would totally take that. <sighs> anyway. <Nice. laughs> the castle itself is a large, bleak, gothic, stone, imposing structure that sits way on the top of a mountain. It is quite imposing. The castle was located in the Little Carpathians, a 100-kilometer-long mountain range, in what is now modern-day Slovakia. And the mountain range itself was surrounded by farmlands and the 17 local villages. And goats. Probably lots of goats, yes. The locals welcomed their new governing family, not realizing in the slightest that death was about to come to their little town. Dun, dun, dun. For the first few years of their marriage, Ejebet learned how to manage her estates and help govern the local villages, while Ferenc was fighting a war with the Hungarian army. Ferenc, also known as the Black Knight of Hungary... Yeah. Became known for his shocking brutality among his troops. And in a medieval war, this is like a pretty good thing. Mm -hmm. And in 1578, it got Ferenc promoted to the chief commander of the Hungarian troops. And he led them into a war against the Ottomans. The war kept Ferenc away most of the time, leaving Erzsébet in charge back at home for a great many years. Now, her role was an active one, though. She was not just a well-dressed throne sitter. Erzsébet was responsible for the Hungarian and Slovak people. She had to provide medical care during the long war, which struck me as insane. Hmm. A duty which included becoming an active midwife. As such, she helped deliver at least five babies on her own. <laughs> what a strange... I know. They're what? like, you got to be a doctor if you want to rule this country. Right. Well, I guess maybe she had the powers And not even the be? whole country. She's just like the governor's wife. 
So imagine like the governor of New Jersey's wife is also expected to deliver babies and rule the rule the land. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Oh, Governor Phil, tell your wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Mrs. Governor, I my fr- water broke. I know. Can you deliver my baby in this field? She'd be like, get the fuck out of here. I can tell you about COVID precautions. That's about it. Huh. Forget her first name. I do too, which is killing me because he said it so many times. And right now I'm just not thinking. She's lovely. Yes. We're part of that problem. Yeah, it gets, but this gets crazier. She has more responsibilities. I'm not done. Oh, man. Erzabet was also in charge of defending her husband's estates from invading factions. Okay. There is no designated military leader on the home front at that point in time. This fell on the lady of the castle. Hmm. So they weren't like, we're going to leave a general here to defend our homes. But isn't there, I mean, would she just be the final say? Is there somebody there that she, like, speaks to? It's not like she goes out there with a sword. Like, I'm sure it's probably like in Game of Thrones where they're like, what would you? I I mean, I I don't think, I don't know. There was no active battles there. It was only defending from invading factions. Right. But she had to tell them what to do. Yeah, that's pretty, I feel like that's She had no military training at all. Yeah. Zero, nothing. That's like a tactical status. That's like you have to plan how to defend your home. Yeah, but many times when you're growing up in those families, they, that's what they're teaching you and they talk to you about that stuff. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. Because she wasn't taught any of that stuff. Okay. She was taught how to speak four languages and pour tea properly by a governess and not her parents. (laughs) Okay. Also important, she was not raised by her parents. She was raised by a governess. That was the thing at the time. All right. So, like, she was raised to be, like, a a pretty lady of nobility. And then hmm. then she was doing all this crazy well, shit. Well, they raised her wrong. I think they may have. <laughs> I don't, I'm, again, I don't know. Maybe she was immediately capable and amazing at all this stuff. But I know her education was very much just, like, court etiquette and languages okay. and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. She was very smart, but I don't know mm-hmm. that she was qualified to be, like, suddenly a military leader. <laughs> like, right. Or to deliver babies, for that matter. She didn't have any of that knowledge. She was just like, okay, I guess they come out of here. <laughs> like, who knows at that time if she even knew where they came out of. Hmm. She was 15 when she got married. Didn't she have a baby, though? Not yet. I thought at that point she— Oh, wait, no, she did. She That's did. right. So she didn't know knows. where they came from. She gave, She experienced the whole thing. If anybody, if I'm going to have anybody by my side, I'd want her. It's going to be that teen mom who gave yeah. her baby away to become Vlad the Impaler. Right. Trademark. <laughs> and she probably sprung right back into shape. She probably did. When you're young. I'm looking at her for advice. I mean, yeah. Let us know. <laughs> that was a fun tangent we just went on. A lot of medieval women actually did face enormous responsibilities like this acting as powerful tacticians and rulers in their husband's absence and receiving absolutely no credit. And this is why more than a few medieval women killed their husbands. Hmm. It's like a proven thing. They got they got to be head of the household and like no one recognized that them for that. And they were like, well, I don't need this fucking guy. I could just kill him and then I have everything my way. Right. Smart. She didn't do that though. Through all of this, Erzebed seemingly led her people well. The castle was en route to Vienna, and because of this, it faced significant threat of attack. Erzebed kept her villages from destruction, and in several instances actually took in destitute women and war widows herself. She seems pretty great right now, but this is just part of her complex mythology. (laughs) 
The struggle for Erzsébet wasn't as real as it might seem, though. During this time, when they were in the throes of war, the batteries were seeing significant financial benefits because of this war. And they did nothing to hide their wealth and comfort. Profiting from war isn't exactly great, especially when your country is suffering greatly. So the batteries were not always well-loved by their people. Hungary's economy was significantly depleted and their people were starving. But the batteries were living the high life. They would even go on to lend money to the aforementioned royal inbred family, the Habsburgs, to keep the country afloat. Hmm. So they had more money themselves than the country as a whole. Oh, wow. Yeah. That can, that can make people resent you a little bit because mm-hmm. a war that is tearing your country apart should not be benefiting you significantly and making your life better. Right. But in their case, it was. Ferenc was rarely home during the war, but when he was, he showered his young wife with expensive gifts and affection. Ferenc would share his growing love of torture and brutality by telling Erzsébet's stories from the battlefield. And where most of us might be appalled, the Countess was enchanted. She loved hearing every little detail, and she especially loved the delicate art of painful torture. She loved it so much that Ferenc agreed to demonstrate his tactics on their servant girls so that Erzsébet could learn them for herself, and learn she did. They would perform these acts together, beating the girls mercilessly, slicing their skin with knives, burning them with fireplace implements, placing red-hot coins on their skins, and grabbing, their, grabbing them with tongs that had been in the fireplace. Ferenc was innovative with his methods of torture and taught Erzsébet to do things like place pins under the girls' fingernails or remove their nails altogether with tools. He taught her to soak small pieces of paper in oil and then roll them up and place them between the girls' toes and light them on fire. Among the many gifts Ferenc brought for his wife was a glove with sharp metal claws she could use to drag across the faces of the young servant girls. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. There are also other versions of this story that feature Erzsébet as the leader in the horrifying acts of torture from the very beginning. These versions claim that she is the one who had the burning desire to hurt young women and therefore started this game of torturing young servant girls together and that Ferenc joined in but did so rather reluctantly. In the end, it doesn't really matter who started it. They both did it and she really, 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 really liked it. In either case, though, Ferenc was only interested in causing these girls pain alongside his wife. He had no interest in actually killing them and having bodies to dispose of, and it is reported that he often had to hold his wife back from going too far. Mm. So while he did do terrible things, he didn't want to kill anybody. So under his tenure, people weren't really dying too much. Right. But Ferenc wasn't always home. Mm. Now, clearly, these horrifying games were exciting for the Count and Countess, and so, in the midst of them, the pair did manage to produce seven children, two of which died in early childhood. Their surviving children were Anna Nadazdi, Orsika, sorry, Katalin, Andras, and Paul. And they were all, I know, Paul. (laughs) Okay. That was Ezebet's brother's name, who was one of the rulers of Transylvania, so it's a family thing, but still... Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> they were like, I'm tired of these multi-syllabic and, um, names. Yeah. They, but they were all immediately put into the care of a governess right after they were weaned from their wet nurses. So basically she gave birth, another woman breastfed her children, and then 
still a third woman raised her children. She had, like, nothing to do with them for the most part. But this is was the custom in her social class at the time. Mm-hmm. It probably would have been uncommon for her to raise her own children. Lucky for them, actually. So Yeah. I mean, she was so busy. She had a lot of torturing yeah. to do. Erzebet would mostly reside in a wing of the castle that was just for women. So back in medieval times, like, the countess would have had her own bedroom and the mm-hmm. count would have had his bedroom. And then when they would come together, she would, like, go to his chambers. Right. But they, on a more regular basis, would sleep in separate rooms. So she had her chambers and the children in this wing of the castle, and the children had theirs also in that wing of the castle alongside wet nurses, baby nurses, ladies' maids, governesses, and servants' girls, as well as, like, ladies-in-waiting, which would have been ladies of noble birth that were, like, her company, her pals. So they all live in this big wing of the castle. No boys allowed. Uh, remember, all at this time, all servants would be in-house. Nobody came to just be a servant. You lived in the house mm-hmm. wherever you worked. And it was an honor as a young female member of the village to be selected to serve the countess in the castle. In fact, slightly more wealthy young women would actually be sent to uh, work in service of the countess to learn, like, etiquette and rules of the court. And Erzebet was generous enough to take on quite a few of them. More than a few, actually. Like, an mm-hmm. astronomical amount of them in the end. Well, they had a lot of money. Mm-hmm. With her husband still away much of the time, Erzebet's obsession only grew stronger. And as it evolved, it became more sexual in nature. Remember I said there were no more men in her life. I didn't say anything about women. <laughs> the burnings and mutilations migrated to the girls' breasts and genitals. Many were rendered unable to walk or use the bathroom properly. These beatings and mutilations would take place within the confines of the countess's chambers and rarely occurred outside the women's wing of the castle. Keep in mind that when I say servant girls, I mean girls, not grown women. Most of Erzebet's victims were about 10 to 14 years old. So horrible. Hmm? Now, this is especially heinous and unbelievable, as she did also have daughters of her own. I don't understand how anyone in the world could do something like this, but... Something about her having little girls also just makes it worse to me. I know. Well, she clearly doesn't think of them as humans. No. No, her daughters would have been like a different species than these girls in her mind. Still, though, you see a little girl. I mean, like, I can't help but, like, if I see something in a movie or or something happen to a little girl that's my daughter's age, I can't help but be like, ugh, have a really hard time watching it. I couldn't watch American Horror Story Cult because there was, like, the second episode featured a shot Mm -hmm. Of a child who was around Violet's age with, like, a big halo of golden curls, Mm -hmm. like my daughter has, being forced to watch, like, insanely violent murders. And all I could do was see my child, and I, like, couldn't handle it. So I never watched it again. (laughs) This is a little boy, too. Wasn't even a little girl. Didn't matter. I still was like, nope, that looks too much like Violet, and I can't handle it. (laughs) And I checked right (laughs) out. Anyway, that's just what comes to mind when I see that. Things went on like this for a while, obviously. Then in 1601, tragedy struck. Ferenc fell gravely ill and never really recovered. He got an illness that at first gave him very great pain in his legs. Then he would eventually go on to to lose the use of his legs and become completely disabled by 1603. And so he could no longer command an army. He was confined to his bed in his own chambers most of the time. So Erzebet was left to her own devices now. I don't think they were having a lot of sex or hanging out Mm. a lot. Obviously, at this point, the girls that were subject to Ejebet's rage are not all going to survive this monstrous treatment. 
and a person with the kind of bloodlust that the Countess was exhibiting is only going to escalate. So when Erzsebet began torturing them privately, it was only a matter of when and not if they would meet their end. Right. After Ferenc fell ill, the Nadajdi family, feeling terrible for poor Erzsebet, sent one of their longtime servants, a woman named Anna Dravolia, to be a live-in companion for the Countess. How nice. Yeah, no. If you think Anna, or Anna, however we're going to go with it, was horrified by the way the Countess treated the girls under her employ, think again. Anna was appreciative, and more than that, she had suggestions. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, there you, I mean, she was a great companion. Oh, yeah, she really was. She thought the Countess was holding back, and that she shouldn't be. It was said by the entire staff of the castle after the Countess's reign of terror was over that she grew noticeably more cruel after the arrival of Anna Dravonia. Not sure how that was possible, but we're going to find out together. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, things got more creative. In the summer months, the Countess and Anna would take girls that they had chosen out into the courtyard after the girls had been beaten and starved so that they were too weak to fight They would then strip off all their clothing and smear them with honey. Then they would tie them up over an anthill and watch the insects come and bite them all over. Whoa. Sometimes they would be left there for days. Oh. And just basically be consumed alive by bugs. That's horrible. Mm Mm-hmm. When it got cold out, this activity was no longer possible, but the Countess and Anna found an alternative for that. When the temperatures dipped below freezing, they would take the girls out into the courtyard at dusk in just their underdress. They would then tie them to the garden wall and drench them in water as the sun began to set and the icicles would form on the girls. The girls would then be left there through the entire night. They might live, but most likely by morning, they would be still and solid. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. One incident, small though it was, made a much bigger impact than all the others on the Countess. Every evening before bed, she would have one of her ladies' maids brush out her long chestnut-colored hair. On the evening in question, the young girl doing the brushing hit a snag in her mistress's long locks. Well, that's not good. No. Very long, thick hair that goes through life without the benefit of regular washing or conditioner is bound to be full of snarls and knots. But not hers. Well, not after her (laughs) nightly brushing. So this shouldn't have been too alarming. However, the Countess was very particular and did not want to feel any snags in the brush. I mean, I get that. The girl should be able to brush her hair without her feeling any of it, Mm -hmm. which is nuts when you have, like, waist-length hair that's up in, like, intricate braids all day long. The snag, though, this one, jerked her head backwards and pulled on her scalp. So the Countess turned on her young servant, pulled the brush from her hand, and began to beat her mercilessly with it. In the process, the girl's blood splashed across the room and a large splot landed on the countess's hand. After the girl had been thoroughly punished and the countess noticed the blood, she wiped it from her hand. But in doing so, she noticed that the spot where the blood had been was softer and more youthful in appearance than the rest of her hand. Oh. It was then that the countess connected this with the treatments from her youth. If the blood of the well could stop sickness, then it stood to reason that the blood of the young might be able to reverse the effects of age. Right, that makes sense. Right, science. I read it in Science Weekly for Scientists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From that point on, the Countess would let the blood of her victims drain into a silver chalice, 
drinking it all down when she was through. Sometimes, though, there was no time for such a thought, and during her attacks, she would take large ripping bites out of the girl's flesh, usually on their breast, consuming it as the girl thrashed beneath her. There is also, I don't, I didn't even write this one down, there is also one story where she is torturing a girl and she bites her and then has the girl cut off a piece of her own thigh and cook it over the fire in the bedroom and consume it herself. Ooh. Yeah. That's rough. This is like Ramsey. Everything is Game of Thrones to me right now. It's a lot. Well, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. It makes sense. Damn. The countess would also apply this blood to her face and hands as a skin treatment, but this was not enough. The countess needed her entire body to see the benefits of the glistening virginal blood, and so she collected buckets of the stuff, pouring into her personal bathtub all of it and then soaking in it as long as she could. Do you know how many people you would need to drain of their blood to fill a bathtub? A lot. I do now. <laughs> would you like to hazard a guess? Um, let's say 12. Okay. Well, we don't have the precise measurements of a medieval personal bathtub because mm-hmm. there are not very many of them remaining and they varied greatly from location to That's location. True. Like maybe it's just like a tin tub. Not for a countess. Maybe, right. It's, they're okay. bigger for a countess. Okay. If it was like in a, like a claw foot. <laughs> That's what I used actually as an example. So okay. for the sake of the argument, we will just use the dimensions of a standard clawfoot tub. Okay. A standard clawfoot holds 44 gallons of water, and the standard human body holds about 1.2 to 1.5 gallons of blood. Now, these are small humans, though. They're not fully grown, and they're little. So we will say they have about a gallon of blood per person, okay. which means that she needed every drop of blood, every single one, from the bodies of 44 girls to fill her bath. Now, that's filling her tub all the way to the top and getting in would displace some. So it's probably more like 35. But Uh still, that is a lot for one bath. Plus, they would have to all have been drained within a reasonable amount of time because blood doesn't keep for a long time. You can't be bathing in week-old blood. It begins to decompose after only three days. Blood Mm -hmm. will coagulate. It will separate. It gets gross. It gets thick. It'll rot because it's organic matter. Yeah. So this had to be quite an operation. She had to have drained all of this blood and filled her tub within a th- like a, a most a three-day period, at most. Right. I would say she probably lined them all up. She had like a, like, what is that called? Like a, not like a ravine, but like a. Trench of some kind. Yeah. And then all at once, she just like cut them off from their bodies and then they just drained you from their feet. Them, well, yeah, yeah, you cut them upside from, down. Oh, yeah. Okay, so she chopped all their heads off, and then they just drained into this little funnel that went right into the tub. I like that you're, like, figuring out the mechanics of this. She was just in the tub already being, like, come to me, validation. Yes. (laughs) Now, I don't know what the process was. There is no documentation of the process. I just told you the process. You did do a very good job at it. But there there is art of, like, a countess in this bathtub with, like, a— field dress torso hung over top of her right, draining yeah. into the tub. Ugh. That's just not as, right. I mean, it doesn't make as much sense as your aversion, but it does right. look pretty striking in a painting. Mm-hmm. So anyway, sometimes I have to find out things like that. <laughs> it would just be so thick so quickly. Yeah, it would just be like. Bruh. Yeah, blood is like viscous. It yeah. has like a like a syrupy viscosity to it. You don't, you don't, it would be weird to sit in it. It's closer to sitting in syrup, like pancake syrup than it would yeah. be water. Probably so warm, though. Mm. 
I don't know if, if it was instantly. If it was instantly. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you guys. I don't know. This is what you come here for. So. <laughs> Trying to make sense of it. <laughs> oh, man. But women have done and continue to do crazy things in the name of beauty. So let's take a break for a minute. And Leslie, why don't you tell us about some things, some beauty treatments. Yeah. Some sure. wild beauty treatments that women have tried out. Sure. So, okay. So if I was living back then and you were mm-hmm. coming to me. Yes. Um, I would let you know that pale skin was all the rage at this point. Nice. You know, so you need the paler the better. So in order to have flawless white skin, um, you know, because you want to look high class, uh, you also want to appease God because having really white and pale skin is has like a bunch of religious significance. It means that you are uh, pure, you are honest, you are a virgin, and you are clean. <laughs> Even though the Bible is about brown people. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So in order to keep yourself from tanning from the sun. Ugh, worst. Using a nice parasol when you go out, wearing a mask, maybe a cute hat. You wear a mask out in the sun? Yeah, some of them have like masks. Ew. Keep yourself, yeah. Looking like a creep. You know, think about maybe turning your toilet to the north so that when you go to use it, the sun isn't directly hitting you in the face. Oh, interesting. Also, toilets of that point in time were just hanging your ass out of a hole on like a second story building. Yeah, just face it the way that you need to, you know. Got it. Yeah. In the morning, don't wash your face with water because mm-hmm. water uh, is going to really clean your skin off and then you'll be more sensitive to the sunlight. Of course, you need that dirt layer to really help. Um, you need the dirt layer, but also you can also rinse with um, either yours or someone else's urine, mm-hmm. maybe an animal mm-hmm. urine too. Right. Just like rinse off. That's really nice. It's very nourishing. Mm-hmm. Helps with those UV rays. Doesn't smell bad at all. Nope. But, you know, besides... Staying out of the sun, you could also try just, like, bleaching your face. With what, Leslie? With what? You can do, like, ointments, like mercury, bismuth. Is it bismuth? Bismuth? Bismuth. Yeah. So mercury, bismuth. Mercury makes you crazy. Yeah. Or maybe some, like, lead bases. You know, those are are great. Um, Lead makes you crazy. (laughs) Lead does a lot of terrible things. There's mercury, for that matter. But they work really well. Sure. So— in in a science book that I read. Did you read it in Science Weekly by a scientist? Yes. It's such it's a good a publication. Quote, all of those things, all those ointments, mm-hmm. they are effective in treatment in certain skin pathologies capable of eroding the growths and imperfections of the skin, removing stains and polishing, cleaning, and bleaching the face. Because, you know, like eroding your skin and bleaching yeah. your face is very heavenly. It feels great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can mix these bases too with some white powders, like uh, anything that you have in your cabinets, like starch, some lead-based paint, maybe wheat, maybe mm. rice powders. Mix those in because if those are, you know, it makes it whiter, and then you can just like powder your right. skin with that. Yeah, you and chest need that too. good clown white. Yeah, good. Um, Queen Elizabeth the first oh, uh, was known for her mixture of white lead and vinegar to achieve a very white face. And then she would moisturize with egg whites after. So obviously everyone was literally dying to try this out. It's going to smell like vinegar all the time. (laughs) There is a theory that that's like because of her mask that she would do. Like that is what caused her death. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely heard that. Because she just went crazy over that. Yeah. Which could also be depending on what um, 
the woman in our story, the countess. I'm the just going to call her the countess. I use the countess a lot because yeah. pronouncing all the names. For her, even with her seizures, like she mm-hmm. may have kept having seizures, but even if she was doing any of these popular regimens too, they also could have caused her to start seeing like hallucinating things and going crazy and thinking people were after her or like, or just like I'm not being gonna nuts. Gi- I'm not going to give her that excuse. No, I just mean it could add it to it. It's a be. symptom that could add to it. Oh, not that sure. this is causing any... Like, she's doing this aside from oh, that. Oh, for sure. But I'm just saying, like, okay. She had her um, own treatments, and they were all blood. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, another popular, uh, like, face mask at this time Great. Uh, could be made with mercury and turpentine. Oh, my God. Um, so the instructions for this, Holly, mm-hmm. you're going to mix these together. You're going to leave it on your skin for eight days. Yeah, yeah, eight days of yep. mercury. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then rub it off with steam and bread. Bread? Yes. Just take a nice slice of bread and wipe that shit off? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Very porous. <laughs> Got it. Soft on the skin. <laughs> this bread feels yeah. so nice after I Fresh burned, out of the oven. Burn my fucking Ooh, face off with mercury. That so good. Just like a steam with the mm, bread. Bread face. <laughs> yes. Mm. Maybe we'll just do the bread part. Yeah, because that probably <laughs> soaks up. I would imagine that bread because it soaks up oil, mm-hmm. so it's soaking up I all just, of those oils I just in your eat skin. The bread. Well, you can eat it after because now, now you have oil. And- <laughs> no, I don't want face oil bread. That's disgusting. Okay. Get out of here. Okay, so if you don't like these, Holly, I don't. I have some other fun organic regimens that you could try. Perfect. You know, mercury like. Genuinely makes you crazy, right? Yes, all of those things make you crazy. So terrible. So if you don't like that, then stop judging other people and you could try <laughs> this. Don't make me go into why people say mad as a hatter. Keep going. You could use pumpkin, squash, or melon purees to minimize redness and calm and refresh the skin. Okay, those I like. Yeah. Great. Uh, On board. Cucumbers. Are also used for inflammation and redness while refreshing the skin. You could also put some in your water. Have like a beautiful spa day. I love that. It's really good. We still, you know, present time, absolutely. If you do like a pumpkin puree with like a little bit of honey and vitamin E, eat it. And you just smear it over your face. On your face. (laughs) Avoid your eyes, avoid the mouth, avoid the nostrils, but leave it on for like 20, 30 minutes. It's great. It's absolutely. I just want to eat it. Yeah. It's very reparative, very moisturizing. Add some oatmeal in there too. I want to eat it. Okay. Pumpkin oatmeal with honey? That sounds great. Okay. Make that for breakfast, but then put it on your face. Okay. <laughs> Make like a little extra and then yeah. smear it all over my face while I'm eating a bowl of it. Yes. <laughs> I feel like a psychopath. <laughs> all right. So here are my other top trends and natural treatments. Okay. Bring it. Uh, a slathering of ox dung is great for drying up pimples. No! <laughs> Fill in your smallpox scars with human fat, which, if you don't have any on hand, you can just obtain it from your local executioner. Why would you have human fat on hand? I don't know. Couldn't you use, like, animal— Maybe you're making soap. Tallow or I don't know. Maybe you're Leonardo Tinchuli. Yeah. Forget a paraffin bath. If you really want to get the softest, whitest hands, shove them right into a freshly killed animal and let that hot blood exfoliate and moisturize the shit out of your hands. <laughs> That's what the countess was all about. Well, listen, yeah, she did She did say it made her hand look younger when she yeah. got blood on it. She was like, mm-hmm. look how nice my hands look. Yeah. Maybe I, I mean, need- we used to drink the blood of babies. <laughs> Maybe I need some blood hands. <laughs> um, okay, this isn't all for women. This is all for, so okay. I have some for men. If you are trying to combat baldness, uh, a mixture of rat droppings, honey, and onion juice should be applied to the area where you wish to regrow or thicken hair. 
It'll attract so many women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or men great. if that's what you're looking for. But if you were trying to remove hair, mm-hmm. like you want smooth legs, no hair under your arms, would love that um, mixture of like eight egg yolks, mm-hmm. an ounce of arsenic sulfide, mm. um, egg whites. I guess you have to separate them and yeah, then mix yeah. them then back together. Then put them back together. in together. Um, and lye should be applied. Lye. Yeah. Should be applied to your hair and kept on for 15 minutes before washing away. Um, it should burn all the hair off and, and the skin. And the skin. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh no. Yeah. Um, ladies, in order to look like an anime character, why not put some drops of belladonna in your eyes to dilate those pupils? We talked about that in our yeah. poison episode. You may lose your vision, but you'll look cute. You have the big glistening doe eyes. They yeah. were like a thing at the time. And yeah. so women wanted these like big, wide, glistening eyes. And yeah. so they would blind themselves with belladonna. Absolutely. Beautiful. Um, as for makeup trends, okay, if you want to, so now you got the pale face going, right? You need to apply some color back in, but you don't want to tan. No, of course not. So you need a pale face. And then I would say like uh, do like a red, so a red cheek, a red lip. A bright red lip and a cheek is ideal. And if you want to look like a lady of the court, I suggest using vermilion and a lot of it. Really layer that shit on. It's like a ton. Yeah. Um, it contains a lot of mercury, which Great. we like. Mm-hmm. We, we love, love mercury. that. Um, and it'll likely cause your death. Um, right, but it'll it's be fine. so pretty. Yeah, it'll be great. But besides poisons to color your face, I, you know, I like natural things. Of I, I like them to be, you know, healthy for you. So you could also use beets, berries, and alkanet root. Um, you either just rub that on your cheeks or your lips. You can mix it in with a little bit of fat that you get from your executioner. Oh, God. Uh, create a balm and then apply that to your cheeks or lips, too. So that's, like, a really nice beets. one. Um, are delicious. If you're very religious, though, you want to go light because you want it to look as natural as possible. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Yeah, don't want to be a harlot covered in beet juice. Absolutely not. Um, and, you know, those are just some of my beauty tips. So good tips. So like and subscribe to my channel at Looks Could Really Kill on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. <laughs> I would subscribe. I would subscribe right away. Give me all the mercury-based face creams. Yeah. Oh, mercury does nasty stuff to you. Somewhere back in my category, my catalog of what the Fridays, there is one on mercury poisoning and and hat and people that made hats. Yeah. Because they used to like make felted hats with mercury, and so you would lose your fucking mind if you were a hat maker. Mm. That's why they say Matt is a hatter. I also learned, so this comes a little bit later, so not during this time period, but the, um, you know how you'd see women with like little dots on their face, little mm-hmm. black dots? So that was to hide blemishes. At first I thought those were just like, they'd put them on to like make it look like you had something. Sometimes like a little, they were yeah. because it caught on as a fashion trend. Okay. So initially they were to hide blemishes. Yes. So they would just have them like all over. Be like over. a moon or a star too. They yeah, were shapes. they were shaped sometimes. And so cute actually. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. And you're just like, what are you trying to hide? So another really funny. Gail. Gail. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Gail. Take your little moons off your face. So another really funny fact about using like um, fat and tallow and stuff to fill in smallpox scars, which people absolutely did, mm-hmm. was that the way they homes were heated at the time was by fireplace. Right. So sometimes if women sat too close, not not just women, men, if they sat too close to the fire, they would melt and oh, like right. ru- the wax would run down their face. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't like get too warm if that was your, your like 
beauty treatment of choice. It was so hard to be a woman. Also, like, fat would smell. Wax was is not as bad, but, yeah. like, fat from an animal or a person, that would be a smelly situation. Yeah. I just think it's so funny that there's these, these horrific beauty treatments that you could do, but then, like, it's also mixed in with, like, just puree a pumpkin. Yeah. Gourds are really in right now. A little beet. Yeah. Fine. This was, like, new. Like, gourds were just in, and they were, like, and it's so good. Like, we use it today. I'll take a if pumpkin you, face you, mask. Yeah, if I you puree a pumpkin, like when you're making your jack-o'-lanterns, puree that Slop pumpkin. Slop some of that shit on your face. Yes. It's amazing. You'll be like, wow. All right. Well, thank you for the tips. You got it. Hot tips. So maybe a shepherd wasn't that weird. Mm-mm. No, she was, she was that weird. It's fine. <laughs> on January 4th, 1604, Ferenc died at just 48 years old. Oh, that's from, a good turn. I know. <laughs> From complications due to his mysterious illness. Now, there is no way I can even begin to suss out what illness that was. And you know I tried. Mm. You know I looked. There are a ton of medieval maladies that could paralyze and eventually kill a person. Google it and pick your favorite. It's that one. There you go. Choose your own adventure. Ferenc and Erzebed had been married for 29 years. Before dying, Ferenc entrusted his heirs and widow, because you have to will them to somebody Mm -hmm. at that point in time, to Jorg Thorso, who paid pretty close attention to the insane amount of girls coming into the castle that were never heard from again. Mm. He would eventually lead the investigation into Erzebet's crimes. That's nice. For not her, but yeah. Right. He was trying to fix shit. I'm glad, I'm glad someone came in and cared. Yeah. Thrown into this new phase in her life, newly widowed, passed on as the property of another man, and deep into the throes of, for the time, middle age, the countess had become quite afraid of aging. She was terrified of losing her beauty and having other women in her kingdom outshine her. And I know the whole thing is very Snow White, and that's probably for a reason. Snow White was written in 1812 by the Brothers Grimm, who were German. Hungary is the next-door neighbor to Germany, for those Mm -hmm. of you without a map of Europe in your head. And there was a very good chance they had heard of the Countess. And a story like hers tends to leave an impression. Yeah. So stuff like a woman who wants to cut out a heart to stay young and beautiful could easily be from this kind of influence. Mm -hmm. So her story really does penetrate a lot of mythology that was very lasting. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the blood countess required a large amount of young girls to be delivered to her on a near daily basis. I mean, you need 35 girls to make your blood bath. You're getting a lot of girls. It's also good to keep, to do a daily regimen. Right. And she was obviously trying to preserve her own fading beauty. She had her closest ladies-in-waiting and Anna, her right-hand men, go out into the village and recruit young girls for her. And in a lot of versions of the story, they call them girl catchers, which is— Oh, like a cat catcher. Or like a— Yeah. cat catchers down here. Terrible. (laughs) Uh, So they would would recruit these girls so that they could bring them to work for the countess and she could kill them. And people began to notice. Before Ferenc passed on, rumors of the atrocities at the Bathory Place had begun to circulate. But I think because of Ferenc— the, inf- uh, the influence he had and the efforts he had made to keep things a secret, nothing was done. Lutheran minister Istvan Magyari made complaints against the countess, both publicly and at the court in Vienna, but authorities had taken their damn time to investigate the situation because they were nobility. Mm-hmm. 
Finally, in 1610, King Matthias II assigned Georg Thorzo, who was the Palatine of Hungary, and the man who was willed the countess and her children when Ferenc passed on, so this is that same guy, he, the king told him that he was supposed to investigate what was happening with the countess and all okay. the girls that were going missing. So, Georg Tharso orders two notaries to collect evidence in March of 1610. So he's like, go up there, talk to people, get evidence, find out what's going on. By October of 1610, they had collected 52 witness statements. But by 1611, that number had risen to over 300. Mm. A lot of witnesses. According to the testimonies, Erzsébet's first victims were girls aged 10 to 14, and they were the daughters of the lesser gentry, which were upper-class people who, um, they, had, they had money but not nobility, uh, these upper-class people I talked about before. Now, their girls were sent to the countess by their parents to learn courtly etiquette. Mm-hmm. Now, these girls were pretty conspicuous when they sustained grave injuries or went missing because they were for upper-class families. Uh, so the countess quickly moved on to servants. The use of needles was mentioned by the collaborators in court, as well as all of the horrifying things I have just spoken about. So people, witnesses in court, told all of these stories. Okay. You know, like the blood bathing, the ants and the honey, the light cannibalism, everything included. What a day in court that must have been. Wow. I mean, even for a medieval court, that's pretty rough. Mm -hmm. Some witnesses also named relatives of their own who had died while in the care of the countess. Others reported having seen traces of torture on dead bodies in the village. Because remember, there's a lot of dead bodies involved in this. I guess some of them were were brought out with village dead, and they said they later found a bunch of them buried either in the castle cemetery or on the grounds of the castle. Mm. They just kind of were spread out. I'm sure some of them were burned. I I, I don't know. They were just all kind of— It's probably getting so stinky. Also, but, but back then, it was always stinky, first of all. And second of all— People got sick and died all the time. Yeah. Bodies were not uncommon. They just kind of were around. Right. But then you, like they were saying, you could notice when it looks like it was torture. Yes. Versus so them they just could see dying. like people who look mangled and mm-hmm. were like burned all over the place and stuff. That's clearly not like you just yeah. got sick and died. I just lost my scalp. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. So that the traces of torture they saw in these bodies would be bite marks, deep wounds, burn marks missing pieces of flesh. So, yeah. Just to name a few. Yeah. Two court officials claim to have personally witnessed the countess torture and kill young servant girls as well. Mm. Though I have some of my doubts in this because where were these court officials? The countess, while she did do some things on the grounds of the castle, a little more in the open air, she wasn't walking out into the village to do it. Okay. On December 30th, 1610, Jörg Thurso went to Chaita Castle to arrest the countess and four of her servants, who were accused of being her accomplices. Anna Dravolia, though, was not among them. By this time, she had passed away. Anna knew what was coming for her. Those in command, when this investigation began, suspected her to be a witch. They said Anna had brought dark magic into the castle, and this is where the possessed by devils things kind of came back into play. And we all know what happens to witches in the 1600s. It ain't pretty. And they actually did burn heretics in medieval Europe, unlike 17th century Salem. Anna mysteriously died before she could face any consequences, but many people suspect that she took her own life. Hmm. According to York Thurzo's letter to his wife, during his unannounced visit to Castle Chaita, he found one dead girl 
and another girl barely clinging to life who had clearly been severely tortured in the castle. Though they did not ask her what had happened to her, they just kind of assumed it was torture based on all the burns and cuts. She was probably like, I'm happy to talk. I know, <laughs> just right? ask me. They were like, shh, 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 no, we see fine. your torture, bye-bye. <laughs> Although it's commonly believed that Erjabet was caught in the act of torture, that isn't true. She was actually having dinner. Mm. Initially, Jörg Thurzo claimed that he had caught the Countess drenched in blood mid-torture session. But that's just a lie he made up because it's real dramatic. Mm -hmm. He really had a flair for the dramatic. Okay. (laughs) Way more interesting to hear. Not true. Erzhebet had had to be dealt with carefully, though. She was no common criminal, and the Baltaris and the Dajdes were very powerful. Her family which ruled Transylvania, sought to avoid the loss of Bautry property, which was at risk of being seized by the crown following public scandal. So they really had to kind of make this a quiet affair, though it didn't end up to be one. It was decided through a lot of back and forths that she would not be executed or placed in prison, but kept under strict house arrest, which is like not that bad. Right. She was detained in the castle of Chaita for the remainder of her life, and there she stayed. She died at the age of 54. As York Thorso wrote, Erzhebet Baltri was locked in a bricked room. Again, very dramatic, but not true. Visiting priests reported that she had been free to roam inside her wing of the castle, so more like a traditional house arrest. On the evening of August 20th, 1614, the countess complained to her bodyguard that her hands were cold, and he said, it is nothing, mistress, go lie down. She went to sleep and was found dead the next morning. She was buried in the church of Chaita on the 25th of November, but according to some sources, due to the villagers' uproar over having the countess buried in their cemetery, which is understandable, she murdered a whole bunch of their daughters, her body was moved to her birth home at a shed where it was interred in the Bautari family crypt. The location of her body today, though, is unknown. Hmm. The Chaita church and the castle of Chaita do not bear any markings of her possible grave. After the countess had passed, it is said that a journal was found hidden in her private chambers. In the pages was said to be the names of over 650 girls. She had kept a tally of her kills. Wow. And that makes her the most prolific serial killer. It's definitely the most prolific female serial killer of all time. And she's up there with most prolific of all time. Right. Now... There are those who do not believe the blood countess was as cruel as she was said to be. Most of the witnesses that testified said that they had heard the accusations they were giving in court from other people. They did not see it themselves. Right. And the servants of hers that confessed did so under torture, which we know is not a reliable confession. You're Mm going to say anything if somebody's ripping your eyeballs out. Which is, like, absurd because they're also— because they would have been getting tortured by her. Possibly, so, like, why are you torturing? Not. That's true. The accusations of murder were all based on rumors. There is no document to prove that anyone in the area complained about the Countess. The book that they reported finding was never discovered or entered into evidence at court. Just people said they saw it. Right. But you could never see it. She was, however, a woman who profited in a time of war and desperation— a woman who flaunted her wealth when the country was suffering, a woman of privilege, and there are those who say she didn't do a single one of the things she was accused of. But when the forces that be want a villain, they will make one. Oh, maybe like Anne was just like her lesbian lover, and they didn't like that either. 
Mm-hmm. I think they just, if you want to go with this theory, people just didn't like the nobility at that time. Right. And if all of that is true, Erzhebet Baltari was the subject of one of the most lurid witch hunts of all time. Mm. But I'll leave you all to decide what you think. Interesting. And that is the story. But then there could be like the in-between where she did do for sure. Maybe like a handful. Yeah, where she was really mean and she beat the shit out of her servants, but she didn't necessarily like drink their blood and put them in anthills. Right. I mean, I'm assuming that she at least was terribly cruel, because like you said, that's how she was brought up. I'm sure she was an asshole. I'm sure she was. But and then maybe, maybe there were a few. But I would it seems absurd that six hundred People could go missing or killed, and there wouldn't be an uproar just from the townspeople. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Even though it's spread out over 17 villages, they're not going to be big villages in medieval times. That's a lot of fucking people. That's like everybody's daughter. Right. Maybe she did kill a bunch of her servants, but not in that way. Maybe she was like just a shitty asshole that beat them all the time Mm -hmm. or let them get sick and die or starve them, didn't feed them. There are many ways that they could have died in like ridiculous medieval hungry, but like— yeah. Truly, we don't know. We really don't. She has become this, like, bigger-than-life mythical creature. But we don't—I mean, it's it's so long ago. There is no documentation of any of the stuff that happened or evidence. So we really don't know how much of it is true. It's a really good story, though. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there are painted portraits of her, and, like, she definitely was a Hungarian royal, like— Mm. Wow. Yeah. Toast? Toast. Oof. Not a lot of goodies in this one. <laughs> I guess to the peasant boy, her first love. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Cheers to poor peasant boy. And that guy in a horse. Oh. There ain't nothing you could steal that means you deserve to be sewn into a horse. No. Cheers. Pour one out for that guy. But I bet he had really youthful skin. He probably did. For a while till he died. Yeah, and, and then he was definitely there. dead yeah. in a horse. But I bet they were like, he looks like a younger version of the man we sewed in here. Yeah, he looks better now. Wow. Maybe we should put horse guts all over ourselves. <laughs> okay. Do we have That's... anyone else to toast this week? So we have a new patron Yay! this week. A man who uses a daily regimen of lead and white vinegar, John Campbell. Cheers, John Campbell. I bet your skin is flawless. Thank you for being a best fiend. All right. I think that about does it for our toast this week. Uh, Don't forget to become a patron yourself if you have not done that already so you can watch our video after show, Host Mortem, which I'm pretty sure is going to be pretty wild this week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... If we wished to cheat death in the name of youth and beauty, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Bread? Yes. Just take a nice slice of bread and wipe that shit off? Yeah. Oh, okay. Dun, dun, dun.